The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. A few weeks ago, I devoted a program to my favorite theory about the prophetic number 666, that it's the World Wide Web and how I felt it was already inextricably in control of our lives. These are ideas I loosely title Prophecy of the Future That Has Already Happened. And I thought today, being that it's Memorial Day, would be a good time to pick up with a prophecy of a third temple in Jerusalem and why some fundamental Christians, as well as some Orthodox Jews, are hot to see it built. But first, let me say welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. The fascination with the Temple Mount in Jerusalem goes back thousands of years, all the way back to the story of Abraham, in fact. Abraham, as you'll recall, was one of the few guys in the Bible whose faith proved him worthy of God. As a result, Abraham became the spiritual father to the three great monotheistic religions of the world, Christianity, Judaism and Islam. And you'd think with Abraham as our spiritual father that uh, we'd get along better than we do. Well, Abraham won his final stripes with God by just following orders. That is, by taking his son Isaac to Mount Moriah, which is now known as the Temple Mount, and there offering to put his son to death as God had requested. God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, and uh, take him to a place I tell you, and prepare him to be slaughtered. It was the shedding of innocent blood. But at the last moment, an angel restrained Abraham's hand. He's often painted with his arm raised, about to strike his bound son on the on the altar. And there was a ram, uh, happily in place, uh, caught in a thicket nearby. And uh, an angel told Abraham, do not kill your son but instead substitute the ram uh, as a blood sacrifice to God. So zip ahead a thousand years or so, and King David's son, Solomon, has built himself a, a great palace and a great temple on Mount Moriah, on the same spot where Abraham had found a rock altar to sacrifice his son upon. One thought in building the temple was that God needed a place to house what till now had been oh, what amounted to a gold-plated mobile home which we now know as, or, and it was known then as the Ark of the Covenant. And it was called that because it was a box that Moses had built to carry the remnants of the stone tablets on which God had carved the Ten Commandments. Very sacred, very powerful. And this box itself was very powerful. It was a communications tool. Um, and it was also uh, the uh, place that God sat, supposedly, when he came to visit Moses during those years, during the Exodus, when they were traveling from place to place in the desert. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was a structure, and uh, in fact, some people have tried to replicate it uh, to see if it's really a communications tool, because it was the structure through which Moses talked to God. Because it was intended to house the sacred Ark, Solomon built a little room within the temple called the Holy of Holies. The Ark was so sacred and so powerful that only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and then only once a year. 
covering the entry to the Holy of Holies was a thick curtain. In the second temple, I, they said it was 80, 80 feet tall. It was beautifully woven. I believe there were stars and moons and, and other things uh, woven into it. But it was there to keep curious eyes from seeing what the high priest was doing in there. There's even a legend that when the high priest went behind the curtain, he had a rope tied to his leg or to his ankle so that if God should strike him down while he was in there, the priests outside the room could drag him out by this rope without entering the Holy of Holies themselves because that was forbidden. Now, there's no proof that this was actually done, but it does make a good story. They also say that there were that the uh, high priest's robe was fringed with little bells and they could hear him moving inside. But if he stopped moving, then they would know there was a problem and um, that's when they would pull him out. But the Holy of Holies was not the only reason Solomon built the temple. The centerpiece, as far as Hebrew believers were concerned, was an altar where innocent blood could be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And as a side note, I always think... How interesting it is historically that killing something has got to be connected with the forgiveness of sin, especially in light of God's commandment, thou shalt not kill. But anyway, fortunately in the past, God had stopped the sacrifice of children by staying Abraham's knife-wielding hand, just as he was about to plunge it into the body of his son. So God provided a male sheep instead whose horns were caught in a nearby thicket. And this is an interesting parallel. The whole thing is, of course, an interesting parallel to Jesus and his death. Um, but the uh, the thicket is a is a parallel. Uh, Two thousand years later, it becomes the type for Jesus. The the ram does uh, uh, Jesus, the substitute sacrificial lamb, and the crown of thorns. Although they didn't intend it when they put it on his head, they only wanted to cause him pain. Uh, signifies the thicket. The ram was caught in as well. Thus, the tradition was established uh, to make Mount Moriah the place for blood sacrifice because this holy place was where Abraham had obeyed God and God loved him for it. It was reason to be the only altar where sins could be washed away in the blood of the lamb or the dove or whatever whatever living offering a contrite person would provide. Uh, They would bring what they could afford, a lamb, a sheep, a goat, uh, a dove, to uh, the temple uh, to gain God's forgiveness for sin. This was a sin offering. The sinner would purchase the goat kid, for example, bring it to the temple, give it to the priest, and the priest would cut its throat on the altar, letting the blood drain down through a series of channels down to the Kidron Valley below. And as you can imagine, with a number of sinners uh, making such sacrifices, the blood ran, they said, day and night making that valley a very smelly, I'm sure, but very fertile uh, soil. Perfect for growing olive trees, for instance, which uh, were still growing there the last time I looked. So the precedent was established for Hebrews. To get your sins removed, you should go to the temple and have something killed. You can imagine, then, the shock and awe when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and tore down Solomon's temple, and stole the treasures, looted and destroyed the temple, basically. The Jews were carried off into slavery for some 70 years or so, and when they returned, some effort was made to reestablish things on the Temple Mount. Uh, I don't think historians are really sure how much was rebuilt, but 
wasn't really until just before the birth of Jesus, some 500 years later, that Herod rebuilt what came to be known as the second temple. That's the temple that was standing when Jesus was around. And the blood sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins was again renewed. People were again going to the temple, changing money, buying a sacrifice, sacrificial animal, giving it to the priests. The priests would kill it, the blood would flow, and sins were forgiven. While he was alive, Jesus told his disciples that that second temple would be destroyed as well. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, uh, Jesus, uh, it says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him and called his attention to its buildings, how beautiful they were and so forth. And Jesus said, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And true to that prophecy, the Romans destroyed in around 70 AD, this is interesting cycles of 70 years um, that uh, that recur again and again, uh, especially in, in the Old Testament, but in the New as well. And in the Bar Kokhba rebellion um, of 132 AD, when the when the Jews really annoyed the Romans, uh, they pretty much totally leveled what was left uh, from the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. They they knocked it down completely. Now today, the heights of the Temple Mount are crowned by uh, everyone's favorite photograph when people go to visit Jerusalem: the gold-plated dome of the rock. It was built as a shrine by the Muslims in 691 AD. And uh, it is built to honor Abraham. And if you go into the uh, Dome of the Rock, which um, I was privileged to do in, back in 1966, uh, that's when the old city was still in Arab hands. It was before the 67 war. But in the center of the room, and the inside is incredibly beautiful. It's all tiled and there's carpeting and so forth. It's not a mosque. It's a shrine. But it's people, uh, Muslims do pray in there. Um, at least they did when I was, when I went in. Uh, house, um, houses as the centerpiece of this beautiful building, uh, a hole in the floor surrounded by a, um, a railing. And when you look down, down below, and it was lighted back then, I assume it still is, you could see this rough hewn rock that was, uh, uh, Abraham's rough rock altar, and it's it's been enshrined below. It's the thing that makes that site so sacred. Just this past season uh, on TV, a short-lived fictional drama series titled Dig appeared on the uh, USA Network. If you saw it, you know the it was the story of how some Third Temple Orthodox Jews are conspiring with end times, you know, apocalyptic thinking Christians to destroy the Dome of the Rock and rebuild the temple for a third, some would say fourth time. Uh, of course, the dome being the third most sacred spot in Islam uh, would have to be destroyed if you were going to build a temple on the same site as the dome. And to destroy the dome could possibly trigger nothing less than World War III because as the Jews and the Muslims and the Christians fought it out, all the nations of the world would, would get involved. And Jew, Jerusalem and Israel 
and ultimately the Middle East and the rest of the world would be in chaos. Even sparing the dome, which is a theory that some archaeologists have come up with, uh, if you go, there's a big flat area um, adjacent to the dome, and on that big flat area there is a little uh, structure, open air structure, um, that uh, shows a little bit of a rock outcropping. Some have theorized that this rock is Abraham's rock. And if you could build a Jewish temple next door to the Dome of the Rock, wouldn't that all work out for everybody? Because then uh, everyone would have a fair shot at worshiping um, uh, and honoring Abraham in their own way. Well, it's a good theory, but Jews are not even allowed to go up there with the Dome of the Rock and the and the Arabs present. And even if they tried to build it next door to the dome, uh, probably the problem is and the probability is that it would all uh, go go haywire. Um, it's uh, another possible a possible trigger for a Middle East war. And uh, no one except a few folks in love with the notion of apocalypse and or the second coming could possibly want to see this happen. Still, as uh, that program Dig pointed out, there are people actually working toward that end. When my wife and I were in Israel some years ago, we visited a storefront office where Third Temple Orthodox Jews were willing to share their story with us. Uh, these are folks who are dedicated uh, body and soul to the rebuilding of the, tearing down the Dome of the Rock and rebuilding the Third Temple. They were particularly upset uh, when we talked to them that the Palestinians were still removing any remaining archaeological evidence that the temple had ever existed, that the second temple and Solomon's temple, the first temple, had ever been there. Uh, if they found any traces, they just pulled them up and threw them away. And meanwhile, the, uh, the third temple Orthodox Jews were busy assembling all of the sacred elements needed to reestablish the sacrificial practices of the temple mount the tools of the sacrifice, uh, um, the garments, um, the ephod, the jewels that the high priest wears, and the um, red heifer. Uh, the red heifer is an important part of this whole picture. It has to be a heifer born with no different hair coloring at all, just this brownish-red color, no blemishes. has to be um, a heifer that never bears a yoke, has never had to work, and it would be sacrificed by, uh, I believe, the high priest. And the ashes of the heifer, uh, once it was um, once it was incinerated, would play an important role in repurifying the sacrificing priest, because the sacrificing priest, by handling a dead body, um, becomes defiled by that dead body, and so he can't go on doing what he's doing unless this purification can take place. And that's what the red heifer is all about. Well, while we were in this storefront office, I happened to ask them, what, what, what have Jews been doing all these years in lieu of a temple to cleanse themselves from sin? And they told me that sacrifice in the form of charity is a partial remedy. It's almost equivalent to the spilling of innocent blood. Uh, making money is, or money itself is somewhat akin to blood in their eyes. It's the only way they have uh, for making reparation uh, through 
through action uh, to 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 let light, uh, lighten the load, I guess you'd say, of sin in their lives. Um, and you know, it gave me some insight into the medieval prejudices against Jews. Uh, Jews were always uh, treated as greedy, and uh, uh, and in fact, if you think about it this way, um, they what they were doing was shepherding something as important as the funds that would become through giving a procedure for ritual forgiveness. Um, when I was in high school, I was uh, I had a part in The Merchant of Venice, a play by Shakespeare about uh, a merchant who is kind of goofy and irresponsible, and um, Shylock, who is this money lending Jew who is scorned by everybody and really treated badly, even though he's not um, he's not an immoral person at all. They just you, you can read in the lines of uh, the Merchant of Venice, the prejudice against Jews in that particular era. Anyway, um, the Third Temple Orthodox, speaking of money, were uh, rather amused by the support they were getting from fundamental Christian sects, who they said would never be permitted to enter the Third Temple once it was built. Uh, but still, Christians were donating money to them hand over fist in order to get the temple built. Um, they said, in fact, that Israel itself was only for the Orthodox. Not even conservative or reformed Jews would be allowed in if they were in control. Still, they were, they were delighted to accept the funding Christians were providing because the Christians were hoping, because of prophecy and revelation in other places, Daniel, some texts have been read to, um, to mean that without the third temple being built, uh, Jesus' second coming won't take place. And they're hoping that to, if the Jews succeed in building the third temple, it'll trigger the second coming, Jesus. Yikes. And that's what I thought at the time. Yikes, yikes. All this effort and uh, to, to bring on World War III in the name of forgiving sins and the return of the Messiah. But then, in another place in Jerusalem... I had the sudden realization the third temple had already been built. Now this happened the very next day. My wife and I had gone to visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and as it turned out, we were in time for a mass being conducted by priests of one of the several Eastern Orthodox communities involved in maintaining the church. And I use the word maintaining loosely for the shared arrangement between uh, several Christian churches has proven uh, virtually impossible uh, to agree on uh, what to maintain, when to maintain it, to what extent to maintain it, uh, how improvements should be made. And uh, although there have been some agreements in recent years over oh, the restoration of a dome and so forth, there are many elements of the structure falling apart, and they've been falling apart for centuries. Now, in case you don't know about it, let me tell you something about the history of this amazing, albeit dilapidated, church and the site on which it was built. In the writings of Eusebius, we are told the Roman emperor Hadrian, in the 2nd century, built a temple to the Roman goddess Venus, or Aphrodite. This is the goddess of love. Where did he build it? He built it right on top of the cave in which Jesus had been buried. He wanted to cover the burial site of Jesus. 
That was in the second century. Shortly after the rise of Emperor Constantine, around um, the early 300s, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was envisioned to include practically all of the actual geographic locations of what is known of Christ's passion. That is his torture, his death on a cross, his burial in the tomb, and, of course, his resurrection. So they unco- they tore down the, this temple to Venus, which, by the way, I should note, the goddess Venus, the goddess of love, What a, I mean, if you were going to desecrate Jesus' tomb with a pagan uh, goddess, what better than someone that represents love, after all? But that was just an aside. So they uncovered uh, Jesus' tomb once again, and uh, in the process of building an enormous, it was actually, it was like two churches connected, um, and it was completed right around the year 333 A.D. It enclosed many of the places named in the Catholic Stations of the Cross. If you're familiar with those, there are 14 Stations of the Cross, and they mark uh, Jesus' suffering and death on the cross, his burial and resurrection. They're like key moments when he falls the first time and the second time, carrying the cross through the streets. Even the route, Jesus' route, was, um, at least part of it, was in, in, inside this huge church that they built. Um, it enclosed, uh, as I said, many, many of the stations of the cross, including Jesus' route and carrying the cross, Calvary, where he was crucified, also called Golgotha, the place of crucifixion, and his burial tomb, which is where he rose again. Since that time, the building has gone through wars, Islamic occupations, destructions by fire, and destructions through lack of maintenance. That's what it's suffering, that's what it was suffering from when I was there last. And today the building is considerably smaller than the original. Um, nevertheless, the key elements of Jesus' sacrifice are still there and still venerated. Now, central to this big structure is a small building, smaller than a one-car garage, called the Eticule, which covers what remains of Jesus' tomb, the place Christians believe where Jesus rose from the dead. During most of the Mass that we were attending, my wife and I were there, and this this Mass was going on, the priest stands out in, in the main church in front of the congregation under one of the domes, but at the moment when the bread and wine are changed, um, transubstantiated into the body and blood, the priest enters the eticule, the Holy of Holies, this little building inside the big building to enact the transformation. Then he comes out and the people share in communion. And as I watched the service, I suddenly awoke to the realization that I was in fact standing in the third temple, at least as far as Christians and Messianic Jews are concerned. The parallel stories of God's son, Jesus, and Abraham's son, Isaac, were just too obvious to ignore. Consider, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son as a test of his faith. But at the last minute, God spared Abraham's son. 2,000 years later, man asked God for a Messiah, but lacking God's love, we sacrificed him, the Messiah, without mercy. Isaac was spared. Jesus was not. We don't really know if Abraham ever fully forgave God for what he put him through, but 
God fully forgave us by resurrecting Jesus, and not only that, by making his innocent blood the final sacrifice. No more would animals have to be slaughtered on Mount Moriah to expunge sin, because Christ's death carried with it the ultimate and lasting forgiveness only Jesus' death could convey. You see, Jesus was God's path to understanding the flaws of human nature. By becoming a man himself, Jesus became, I like to think of it as a two-way icon, if you will, a window for God to see us and a window for us to see God. A window to God and a window to us and our fallen nature for God to look at because uh, despite what we did, God forgave us, and the consequences of that are enormous. God's understanding increased dramatically through the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus, as our understanding of God did as well. Now, Christians like to say Christianity is the new temple, or our bodies are the temple, or Jesus is the temple. But in fact, I would argue that the location of the building that fulfills the role of third temple prophecy is this rundown, dilapidated, but still standing church of the Holy Sepulchre. And what nailed it for me was this. After the Mass was ended, tourists, Israeli soldiers, and anyone else who wanted to, lined up to enter the Holy of Holies, the Edicule, the site of Jesus' tomb. Not only did you not have to be some high priest, you could be anyone, Christian, Jew, non-believer, whatever, because at Jesus' death, the Bible tells us the curtain was split open at the temple, and the mystery of the Holy of Holies was revealed to all. Jesus' sacrifice supplanted Abraham's, and his death meant no further sacrifice of innocent blood was necessary. The center of, uh, of the word and, and the center of the world shifted, as a matter of fact. Uh, and uh, uh, as an aside, I should mention that at one time, there was a, a structure um, or a carving called uh, an umphalus right on the site of this um, uh, holy holy church of the sepulchre, church of the holy sepulchre. So an umphalus is the, is supposedly there's one also in Delphi. In fact, there are several around the world, but it's called the navel of the world. Then and the center of the word and the center of the world shifted to this place. It moved from the grandeur of the Temple Mount to a rundown church first built in 333, and that number itself conveys the notion of three made manifest. So three being for the third temple. So I, for one, came away convinced the third temple already exists in a way only made clear to those who believe Christ was the Messiah longed for by the Jews. Of course, humanity still doesn't get it, and the shedding of innocent blood goes on every day. Through our wars and exploitations, we still act as though we can forge a better fate for ourselves through violence, even violence leading to apocalypse. Jesus' message of love and forgiveness is talked about but not acted on. The halls of power, congressmen are endlessly citing you know, quotes from the Bible and quotes from Jesus, and do they act as if they believed it? No, they do not. And so we go on celebrating our memorial days, Year after year, war after war, century after century, when will we ever learn? Uh, one final note I should, uh, I'd like to point out. Uh, back in January, I did a program called, uh, what I did on my Christmas vacation. 
in which I cite uh, a book written by uh, Ra- Messianic Jewish Rabbi Jonathan Kahn talking about the Shemitah. The Shemitah is this year. I don't have time now to explain it all, but um, it culminates on Sunday, September 13th of this year, in which it, we may have a day or, or the beginning of a period that parallels both 2000, uh, 9-11, 2001, and uh, also the crash of 2008. Uh, that date is also just happens to be the uh, day they celebrate um, the uh, dedication of this church, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, falls every year on September 13th. This year, it lines up with a total eclipse and this prophecy of the Shemitah. Interesting. If you hadn't listened to that uh, show I did on uh, January 5th, go back and listen to it again, what I did on my Christmas vacation. Hey, thanks for listening to my theory about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the shedding of innocent blood on this Memorial Day. If you'd like to listen to this or any other of our past programs, uh, please go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about IANS, our services, and news about near-death experience and out-of-body experience, and, and also the upcoming conference in San Antonio, uh, please go to the website at iands.org. And join us again next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern for more NDE Radio. Thanks for listening.